Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Harvard University professor David Keith about solar geoengineering. David will describe to us the variety of ways that solar geoengineering could work, as well as some of its risks at local, regional, and global scales. We'll also talk about the current state of play with regard to recent small-scale experiments and what might be needed to deploy a larger-scale research program. Last but not least, we'll talk about public policies related to the potential deployment of these technologies, including the substantial issues surrounding governance and geopolitics. And one quick note, this episode was recorded well before the extent of the coronavirus pandemic had become clear. Stay with us. Okay, David Keith from Harvard University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks. Great to be here. So, David, uh, we're going to talk today about geoengineering and particularly a type of geoengineering called solar radiation management. Um, We'll define those terms in just a minute and get into the details. But first, uh, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in environmental issues in the first place. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this world? I guess through family. My um, father and stepmother were environmental scientists, uh, biologists, and I actually went out and did field work with them as a kid. And my dad had a tie back to the kind of higher world of international environmental policy. He went to the Stockholm meeting in 72, the original global environmental conference that, you know, led to Rio and so on. Very cool. What type of field work would you do with them? Were they like gathering specimens or something? This was about... DDT and organochlorines uh, in migratory birds. And so one thing we would do is go out to a little island in the middle of Lake Ontario that was a herring gull colony and collect uh, eggs and specimens. Oh, very cool. Um, So let's get into the topic at hand, which is uh, geoengineering. And as some of our listeners might know, you've been sort of uh, all over the place in terms of podcasts lately. So I know you've had lots of practice uh, answering this first question, which is when people say geoengineering, uh, what do they typically mean? And do you have kind of a preferred definition uh, of that term? (laughs) This could get difficult. I I, I think um, I don't know what people mean. It's moving. Nobody owns the words. There's no right answer. What I would say is there are four broad categories of things that humans can do to manage the climate problem. The first is decarbonization or mitigation, it's sometimes called, but basically all the ways we break the link between economic activity and emissions reductions. The second is carbon removal, or if you like, carbon geoengineering or negative emissions. That's a whole bucket of things, reasonably heterogeneous, that are all the ways in which humans might engineer Uh, negative emissions or kind of carbon banking. Uh, And Mm -hmm. then the third is what I call solar geoengineering, but it also could be called climate radiation intervention or solar radiation modification, which is what the IPCC calls it. And the fourth are local adaptation measures. And historically, there was a period where people lumped what I would call carbon removal and what I would call geoengineering into a single category called geoengineering, my view is that is unhelpful. It's not about whether they're good or bad. It's that they are just not tightly linked in either the science, the technology, or the public policy implications. And in fact, uh, carbon removal is much more tightly linked to mitigation. Parts of carbon removal are almost inseparable from mitigation or decarbonization. And solar geoengineering, 
probably stands on its own as this weird thing. But if it's linked to anything, it's probably more linked to adaptation. Great. So let's talk now a little bit more about solar geoengineering. I want to kind of start by focusing on some technical elements of what the technology could look like and then get to the related and very complex and potentially fraught questions of, you know, how and whether it might be deployed. Um, But can you start off by giving us some idea of the technologies um, that, you know, are associated with solar geoengineering and also some sense of their associated costs? Sure. So I guess moving down from uh, far out in space to the surface, um, the first technology would be uh, space-based systems, perhaps the idea that humans could actually build a, a shield, a giant structure between the Earth and the sun to block out, say, some half a percent or percent of the sunlight. Uh, this would be at the L1 Lagrange point between Earth and sun. The second would be putting aerosols, fine particles, in the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere. Um, the third would be modifying cirrus clouds, the thin high clouds. It turns out that cirrus clouds tend to mostly warm the planet because they have an infrared heat trapping as well as a uh, solar band reflection that tends to cool the planet. But the heat trapping can dominate, and there are ways one might reduce the total amount of cirrus clouds in some locations that could um, let more infrared light out. Um, The fourth would be uh, so-called marine cloud brightening, the idea that some kinds of marine stratus clouds, the kind of clouds you'd find, uh, say, off Seattle or off England, Uh, that those clouds could be uh, seeded, if you like, with fine sea salt aerosols in a way that might make them brighter or last a bit longer. And then I guess the fifth category would be all the ways that we would manipulate the reflectivity of the land surface from painting roofs white to putting uh, reflective materials on sea ice. Right. Yeah. And so for me, when I'm kind of casually reading about this this topic, the, the one that comes up the most frequently uh, seems to be the aerosol-based approach. Um, is, is that... Well, all... Am, all, am I right in thinking uh, that I mean, that's I, been where most mm. of the research has been, or has it been all over the place? Yeah, most of the research, I would say, has been on stratospheric aerosols. To be clear, cirrus thinning and marine cloud brightening also involve adding aerosols. So they're all, if you mm-hmm. like, all, all three of those are aerosol-based approaches. But... Um, Stratospheric aerosols have certainly been the largest research focus. Great. So this next question is kind of a timing question. It's about how we should think about the relevant timeframes that might be that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about solar geoengineering. And you might want to, you know, only refer to one or two of the specific technologies that that you just mentioned, or maybe you want to give us a, a a view on on all five of them. But let's say, for example, that um, it was decided to undertake some type of major solar geoengineering intervention. Um, if if it was, you know, uh, stratospheric aerosols, for example, if the technology were deployed and it worked exactly as it was, was designed to, um, how quickly could something like that reduce temperatures and how long could the effect be sustained? So first of all, to somewhat push back on the framing of your question, nothing will ever work exactly as it was designed. There are no versions of any of these where people will ever know precisely what the answers are. Uh, that gets back to kind of risk-risk trade-offs and uncertainty. But but to, to answer the question for stratospheric aerosols, at least some methods of stratospheric aerosols, uh, um, say putting sulfuric acid in the stratosphere, um, those methods could be implemented pretty quickly. I think um, you know a, a technologically advanced country could begin to put materials in the stratosphere in you know just a few years if it really wanted to. 
your, your question supposed that the right answer is to drive temperatures downward. Of course, nobody knows what the right answer is and be a big range of views. But my view is at least in this period where uh, emissions are still positive and concentrations of CO2 are going up, the more sensible way to think about these technologies is to limit the rate of warming or to halt warming and other you know, large-scale climate changes, but not to attempt to drive uh, the climate back towards pre-industrial. Another sort of time frame question that I often hear about when people talk about stratospheric aerosols is the um, the potential that the technology would need to be sort of continuously deployed in order for the effect to be sustained. Is that like a, a useful way of thinking about it? All of these technologies are ways to alter the radiative balance of the Earth, and all of them uh, in- inherently have a kind of short lifetime, a lifetime that uh, ranges from sort of hours to a day for cirrus thinning and marine cloud brightening to a year or so for stratospheric aerosols. Uh, all of them have relatively short time scales, so one would need to keep keep doing it in order to keep a given level of, of, of radiative forcing. Got it. So next question on the technical side of solar geoengineering, and then we'll get to you know some of the questions about governance and, and concerns that people have about it. Um, how much do we know about the technical effectiveness of some of these approaches, such as stratospheric aerosols, and maybe you want to talk about some of the others? You mentioned a moment ago that, of course, we don't know with precision exactly how these things would turn out if they were deployed in the real world. But how, you know, how well is our understanding uh, bounded uh, about the potential range of effects of deploying some of these technologies? So it's useful to think of that question in two really different parts. Uh, one part is. Um, understanding the risks and uncertainty in making the radiative forcing in the actual trail between putting some material in the stratosphere and some resulting radiative forcing or, or putting some material in marine clouds and resulting radiative forcing. The second part of the question is understanding what is the climate response to that forcing. So on the first part, um, that varies a lot between technologies. So for cirrus thinning or marine cloud brightening, we actually really don't know very well how much radiative forcing would get made by some interventions. It could even be in some cases the radiative forcing has the opposite sign. On the other hand, lots of small experiments, much too small to have a climate impact, could quickly tell us a lot about that, and we could monitor it in a kind of feedback sense. For stratospheric aerosols, I think there's actually very high confidence that stratospheric aerosols will make a kind of given radiative forcing, and there's ways that with feedback one could, I think, effectively uh, uh, control the amount of radiative forcing. And uh, I think what I see as a good thing for governance about stratospheric aerosols is the radio forcing inherently, if you like, kind of wants to be pretty even, uh, very even east to west and pretty even north to south. So it's relatively easy to get a pretty uniform global radio forcing from, from stratospheric aerosols. So that's the radiative forcing side. The second part of this is what's the climate response? I think there's really very strong evidence from essentially every major climate model that's been run on this, and and most of them have, that if one used a pretty globally uniform, homogeneous radiative forcing, as could be achieved or nearly achieved with stratospheric aerosols, um, and you did it in a way that wasn't trying to drive the climate back to pre-industrial, but just to shave the peak of climate risk, to reduce the the amount of risk— then uh, the evidence seems to be that essentially every region in the world would see many or nearly all of the major climate hazards like extreme temperatures, changes in water availability, et cetera, uh, uh, see those changes reduced. And it looks like that could be done without any large areas being made significantly worse off. 
that, that may or may not be true, but that's what we see in, in, in a, a, a quite a range of different models. And that leads nicely into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which, again, I know um, could have a wide variety of potential answers. So, so I welcome you um, you know, answering it in, in the way or ways that you think are most appropriate. But when we think about you know, either one or multiple of these technologies, some of them, uh, at least at first blush, uh, would appear to be relatively... Um, low risk in terms of unintended consequences for the physical environment. If I think about painting white roofs, again, at first blush, uh, it's, you know, I can't imagine that that would have the same types of potential unintended consequences that stratospheric aerosols could have, uh, but I might be wrong about that. So can, can you tell us a little bit about some of the key unknowns in terms of unintended consequences for the physical environment if we were to undertake, you know, one or more of these interventions? Yeah, that's a Great question. It's really interesting to try and think about how to compare these interventions that happen at different scales. So it is, of course, true that if you do roof painting or marine cloud brightening at a local scale, that has much less global risk than uh, a large-scale application of, of, say, stratospheric aerosols. But that's not comparing apples to apples. That's comparing something that has a very small local effect and also very small local or global benefit to something that has a global large benefit in reducing overall climate risks. So the better way to think about it is to compare the ratio of benefits to harms. And for the ratio of benefits to harms, I think things look quite different. So for example, you know, take, take an idea that has now got some traction of adding uh, reflective silicate uh, scatterers to Arctic sea ice. That, on the one hand, seems like something that doesn't have a big global implications. But if you do it in a very local place, it also doesn't have any global benefit. If you really did it at large scale, enough to really affect Arctic sea ice, then you can think about comparing that to doing an equivalent amount of, say, stratospheric aerosols to achieve the same impact on Arctic sea ice. And I think if you compare those two things and ask which one has the largest environmental risks, I think it, the answer might very well be putting reflective aerosols in the sea ice because that involves an immense industrial machinery to move much more material, of course, or thousands of times more material onto the sea ice with, with equivalent you know, heavy industrial emissions and uh, big infrastructure in the Arctic to do that, uh, uh, whereas the impacts of, uh, of stratospheric aerosols might be, well be much less. And similarly, with, um, with marine cloud brightening or cirrus thinning, they're inherently local. And while it's possible to locally adjust the radio forcing, uh, it's not possible to have an only local effect on climate. The world's climate is inherently interconnected by flows of heat and momentum. So if you alter the radio forcing and local temperature, say, in one place, you will for sure make distant climate changes that may be unexpected and may uh, be harmful to people in distant places. And that's why these uh, inherently... Um, uh, uh, local technologies may actually be uh, a bigger challenge for governance because they will um, be more likely to produce unequal winners and losers outcome and more likely to result in a situation where one nation or region were going to get pitted against another. That's so interesting. Uh, can, can you give us maybe an example or two of how a deployment of you know one of those technologies could have some at least theoretical negative global consequence that could lead to, you know, um, disputes between nations, for example? 
Sure. I mean, let's say that the Chinese become worried about weakening of their monsoon strength. Uh, a monsoon arises uh, uh, from the contrast between the warm summertime land and the relatively cold ocean. So maybe they believe uh, that cooling the ocean, you know, off the China Sea, using some kind of marine cloud brightening technique, would um, would help. And maybe it would, or maybe it wouldn't. The point is, there's a sort of push me pull you between the Chinese and Indian monsoons because the flows are linked by the large scale circulation of the atmosphere, and it's. Uh, perfectly plausible that that might actually make the Indian monsoon worse. To be clear, I don't know if it actually makes it worse or better. I don't think anybody does. Right. But if uh, the Indians thought that it made it worse, that would set up a pretty sharp confrontation uh, on issues that re- relate directly to food security between two of the world's largest and nuclear armed powers. I think it's intuitive for people to think that uh, these local interventions like cirrus thinning or marine cloud brightening are somehow much safer and easier to govern than um, a more global intervention like stratospheric aerosols. And there are certainly aspects in which that's true. I mean, individual local actions uh, are, in a sense, easier to govern because we don't have coordinated global governance. On the other hand, the difficulty of coordinating local actions is exactly why we have a, a public goods problem in climate. And I fear that there's a bit of a, a, a trap there, that in fact, some of these local interventions both will, really will have local harms because they involve fluxes of materials in the atmosphere that that create uh, atmospheric chemical changes and so on. But also, all the local things inevitably produce at least some non-local climate response. And that non-local climate response means there's a kind of a inherent inequality, a push-me-pull-you quality. And so while it is, of course, true that if all we're talking about is very local, short-term use of these uh, these methods, like for example, if we're just using temporarily marine cloud brightening to limit peak temperatures in the Great Barrier Reef, which is being considered, that that's really an adaptation measure, and I can't speak to whether it works or not, but it doesn't have big governance consequences. But if you're talking about larger scale, continuous use of these technologies to really you know cool some area, that will cause some climate changes somewhere else, and I think that is inherently pretty hard to govern and seems more likely to to spiral out, whereas Putting aerosols in the stratosphere feels somehow more scary because it's global. But if it's right that that doing that produces a much more even result where the distribution of winners and losers is much flatter, it looks like, in fact, most areas win, and it's actually much easier to quantify what the impacts are, including the health impacts, that may actually be easier to govern. That is so fascinating. And um, you know, many of these concepts are relatively new to me as a, as a pretty you know, I would say casual observer of the research on, on these topics. Uh, so it's really great to, to dig into some of these complexities with you. So one related concern that often gets raised, again, to a fairly casual observer of these topics is, you know, because some of the technologies are relatively cheap to implement and could have a, you know, fairly meaningful effect on either local or, or potentially global temperatures, you know, people, there, there are some concerns that are raised that a single nation or maybe a single wealthy individual could undertake a program uh, of global consequence without collaboration from the broader global community. Um, how much do you worry about that type of scenario? And uh, like, what are some of the nuances that you see within it? I definitely worry about it. I think the this sort of fundamental I think, reality that some of these technologies could be implemented by, say, in principle, a single nation will drive what happens. I think the idea that it's actually a single actor 
doing it in a pure unilateral way seems to me quite unlikely. And and indeed, when people think about it, they often migrate to one of two poles. One is the kind of unilateral action, paying no attention to the rest of the world. And the other is the idea that it, it can only happen or should only happen with a global consensus, presumably through some kind of new UN treaty uh, with, with, with no disagreement. I think both of those are, are, are highly unlikely to be what actually occurs. Um, I think even if you were a country that you know had maybe suffered some killing heat wave, maybe a tropical country that really was highly motivated to want to implement these technologies uh, for self-protection, um, because of these sharp governance challenges, uh, because of the interconnectedness of the uh, of global affairs, I think you'd be unlikely to actually want to be purely unilateral because you could expect blowback. So instead, you'd likely work out coalitions of like-minded countries that also wanted to act. And indeed, if you wanted this to be stable, which it would be your self-interest to do, that is that the uh, that the deployment keep happening in a way that was safe, you'd want to think about a coalition that, that could have some legitimacy so, so the action was stable. Um, and on the other hand, I think the idea of a pure uh, consensus all countries agree is very unlikely because even if all countries did broadly sh- share the same potential benefits uh, and risks, uh, it might well be that uh, a country would choose to do the kind of hostage-taking thing that happens in any consensus-based process where you um, uh, refuse to join the consensus in order to get some uh, concession, some benefit on another uh, another element of negotiations. So I think neither the, the global consensus or the pure unilateralism is very likely to happen. What's much more likely to happen is a coalition. And the interesting thinking is all about the dynamics of those coalitions and what combinations of countries and interests would make those coalitions most or least legitimate. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts that you could expand on uh, in that particular area about what types of coalitions you think might be most sort of likely to emerge and, you know, how coalitions might differ? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. I mean, I can't pretend to see what will happen, but I think a key axis of differentiation is the role of the superpowers. So I would say clearly if, say, China and the U.S. both want to do solar geoengineering in some form or both definitely want it not to happen, then that probably determines the outcome. Uh, But if, in fact, the superpowers don't have a really strong view or interest one way or the other, then you can imagine scenarios where this is at least partly drawn by a coalition of smaller powers that somehow span some of the uh, uh, poor South and some smaller uh, democracies in the North. That's certainly my best hope in a sense. But you know, you can you can come up with a hundred of these scenarios. I think the truth is we just have no idea the way this will play out. So, David, in talking to you about this, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that when we think about solar geoengineering, we we shouldn't just be thinking about temperatures, that there are other sort of environmental factors at play. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, there's a a kind of common misconception that somehow solar geoengineering is intended to alter global temperatures and that other things are side effects or that it works for temperatures but not for precipitation. And that's sort of not true. And if anything, it's the opposite of the truth. I mean, the sort of scientific outcome is that solar geoengineering is in a relative sense actually more effective at reducing, say, peak precipitation uh, than it is at reducing temperatures. Uh, and mm. the evidence from, from really all climate models is that it, it could reduce many of the key physical climate hazards, meaning um, changing in water availability, changes in extreme storms, changes in peak temperatures, and changes of global averages, global temperatures. And it could do that in a reasonably uniform way. 
and assertions that it's only goal is global temperatures are, are kind of rhetorical. Nobody owns what the goal is. But the physical fact is that we'll reduce a range of climate hazards, but not exactly equally, and there will be some trade-off between them. That's so fascinating. Um, can I ask you now to talk a little bit about yeah. the sort of state of research when sure. it comes to real-world experiments that are going on, either with uh, with your research group or others that you're aware of? Sure. So experiments only make sense in the context of the larger research effort. And you know, my view is that the central question now is, is not really about whether we should deploy geoengineering, but it's about what a serious research program should look like. And my most important view is that there's enough potential for these technologies to be used, whether people like it or not, and enough potential for them to do good that we should have a much bigger research effort. And that research effort would have lots of components, but one component of it is trying to understand some of the atmospheric processes that are relevant to assessing the large-scale risks and, and efficacy of solar geoengineering. And in understanding those processes better, one thing you may need to do is field experiments, which may or may not involve releasing material, but field experiments that are focused on particular processes that are important in, the, uh, in climate science that are poorly understood and that really matter for solar geoengineering. So there are ideas for experiments moving forward, including in our group. Uh, and there are experiments that have happened, laboratory experiments involving those processes in our group and a group in Cambridge and elsewhere. And there have been uh, some outdoor experiments, uh, an experiment called uh, E-Peace that was uh, performed off the um, Pacific coast a, a few years ago. Uh, and there's development of experiments for marine cloud brightening and, and for what we're doing. But I think a common misconception is that these experiments are somehow tests of solar geoengineering or that they're a step towards deployment. And I think that really misunderstands the gigantic gap between these tiny experiments and deployment, and it misunderstands what the experiments are designed to achieve. They won't tell you whether this will work or not. They will simply tell you some little chunk of information about some kind of nerdy inner process in the way the climate system works that will slightly improve our knowledge of the overall process. So David, we've touched on several different areas related to solar geoengineering over the last 20 or 25 minutes. Um, can you kind of give us your view of just like what's the state of play right now, whether in terms of you know governance or research or other areas that you think are relevant? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's really changing very fast. So as of right now, the total global spending on solar geoengineering research is you know, something like 20 million a year, maybe, maybe not quite that. And it's a bunch of little research programs, uh, you know, in Australia, China, India, Norway, Germany, our program, whatever. But these are all tiny, uncoordinated efforts. Uh, but at the same time, there's a much higher level of, of talk about, about larger efforts and about how to govern them. So just in the last month or so, there's been the first U.S. federal budget allocations that are significant that are in the direction of, of research on these topics. I think that's quite an important right. uh, uh, development. And at the same time, there's been the first beginning of real discussions at a high level in the United Nations, uh, and, and there's been just a much larger international engagement. So following an effort last year at the uh, United Nations the Environment Assembly, several countries have got uh, much more involved in thinking through governance at a high level, so maybe Australia and France, for examples. So broadly, I would say the international dialogue on this is much more substantive than it was a year or two ago. I don't think it's substantive as it needs to be, but I think we're going in a direction to, to do what I feel must be done, which is to bring solar geoengineering into the, the center of climate policy 
And that's true whether or not one thinks it should ever be done. So a reasonable position is to say that there should be a global moratorium on it ever happening. It's not a position I agree with, but there's a reasoned point of view of that. That would be one way to think about its role in global policy. But I think what is becoming increasingly untenable is the idea that we think about climate policy over the next decades in a way that just pretends solar geoengineering doesn't exist. I think that is an increasingly implausible position, and we need to bring it into the core of the debate about what we do about climate risk. Your presence on this podcast and, and other podcasts and and, uh, and elsewhere, I think, is, is certainly helping us do that and, and helping us start to think about these issues in a, in a new and critical way. So, David, now let me ask you the last question that we ask all of our guests on the show, which is, uh, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So something you've read or watched or heard recently related to the environment or maybe related to solar geoengineering that you think is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll just briefly start with, uh, uh, we've mentioned podcasts a couple times, and I'll briefly mention the new podcast from uh, Harvard's program in environmental economics, led by Rob Stevens, who is a friend of RFFs and a, f- a friend of the show. Uh, it's called Environmental Insights. And David, you were a guest on that show recently, and I learned a lot from your conversation with Rob. Uh, and I learned a lot from other conversations that Rob has on that podcast. So I'd recommend people check it out. Rob's terrific. Yeah. How about you, David? Uh, anything in particular that you're reading or enjoying? Well, I mean, if you want to know what's literally <laughs> on my bedside, it's a, a book called Inner Ranges. Uh, uh, um, Mountaineering literature by uh, uh, Jeff uh, Powder, and and that's not totally incidental. I I I spent a lot of time climbing in the climbing world, and I, I've been struck by the fact that there has been this long connection between climbing and environmental activism. Um, uh, there's actually a recent book by Harvard University Press, Pilgrims of the Vertical, that explores that the way you know there were. You know, from the foundation of the Sierra Club to the foundation of a bunch of environmental movements in the '60s, there was this link to to that world, and I've been puzzling about why that's true more. Um, uh, whether it's like risk-seeking people who care about the environment then end up being more uh, inclined to environmental activism, but in any case, what's actually on my on my reading list is Inner Ranges. Great. Sounds really interesting. Um, okay, so one more time, thank you, David, so much for joining us on Resources Radio. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode. 